This is OSLCC Chapter 25, Tracing Our Roots, celebrating 25 years of cultural centers. Broncos, some near, some far, but no matter where you are, we're speaking to you and we hope you're listening. And you never know, we might even be engaging with you real soon. Welcome listeners, I'm Maria Searcy. I use pronouns she, her, and hers, and I'm the coordinator of the WomenX Resource Center. I'm fortunate to be here with Dr. Rebecca Gutierrez-Keaton. Together we'll learn more about the history of the Office of Student Life and Cultural Centers in honor of its 25th anniversary. And who better to educate us on it than a student affairs professional who has worked at Cal Poly for more than 25 years. Dr. Gutierrez-Keaton started in 1989 as a student activities advisor. She served as the Associate Director to Student Life, the Associate Director of University Housing Services, the Director of OSLCC, the Associate Vice President and Dean of Students, and finally as the Acting Vice President of Student Affairs. Unfortunately, she left us back in 2015, but it's all good because she went to pursue her passion for teaching. And she's currently still in that role as a faculty member at Cal State Fullerton in the College of Education and Educational Leadership. Let's welcome back Rebecca. Thank you so much for being here, Rebecca. Hello, everyone. I'm Rebecca Gutierrez-Keaton. I use pronouns she, her, and hers. Thank you so much for being here. So I thought we'd start with a hard question. Do you miss Cal Poly Pomona? I do. Cal Poly will always have my heart. That is the most amazing campus with the most amazing students. Professionally, I, that's where I grew up. That's where I made my biggest mistakes. I have my biggest battles that I fought. Some I won, some I didn't. I can definitely say that Cal Poly Pomona is just a place that I've also seen grow and develop and change as an institution, even if today it still has more growth and more learning and more development that needs to happen. It's definitely come a long way since I started working there. That's awesome. I'm glad you had such a positive experience at Cal Poly and that you were able to grow personally as well as to see the campus evolve over time. So speaking of that, would you be able to elaborate a little bit more on the campus climate during your tenure? So remember, I started in 1989. In 1990, the WASC accreditation team released their report. In the report, it says, and I quote, there is a need for the university to move aggressively toward creating a climate which supports women and minorities. The WASC accreditation team said that they had, quote, genuine and strong concerns over the culture of Cal Poly Pomona in regards to gender, race, and ethnicity. And they recommended that Cal Poly Pomona use its full resources to address these concerns before it is too late and tensions escalated. They, there's a lot more. They said some women and people of color report that they feel unsupported and unwelcome in this environment. Vulnerable is the term they came to use. Incidents of racial and sexual harassment have occurred in recent months. Relations with the campus police are strained. While it's clear that a significant number of resources in the form of soft money and some forms of increasing faculty diversity are being spent, these efforts are scattered and relatively uncoordinated. There's a general sense that faculty and administrators are meeting their obligations with regard to implementing the letter, quote unquote, 
of policies and initiatives related to supporting multiculturalism. There is much work to be done in improving compliance with the spirit, quote unquote, of the institution is concerned. So I can tell you that I was at meetings where students had been expressing concerns about diversity, the campus climate, and I was in meetings where the response was not that strong. And even as a first year student affairs professional, I sat there and I was brought in because I was a woman of color. I wasn't even advising any of the diversity groups at that point. But basically, Wask said, there is a danger that tensions are going to escalate. This idea that everything was based on soft money was absolutely true. There were so few resources dedicated to this area. Um, actually, the Multicultural Council and ASI at that time were allocating most of the resources for things like the cross-cultural retreat. At that time, it was culture weeks that were organized and funded exclusively by the students. So soft money is money that is not guaranteed from year to year. It's money that, you know, the students would vote on each year, could be taken away in a blink of an eye. Even the things like the unity luncheon, it didn't even exist at that time. That wasn't even started until 91. And it was complete, again, that was completely funded by people paying a fee to belong. Wow, so different. Absolutely. So do you feel like, you know, when that, was released by WASC in 1990, that it really did light a fire under the administration to make change? And if so, what really came from that? What was the momentum that came yeah. from President Suzuki was hired in 1991, and he came in with the theme of achieving excellence through diversity. For some people on campus, that was a welcome philosophy. For others, they criticized his emphasis on issues of diversity. Not every group was supported. They didn't even have a diversity committee, like a university-wide committee to look at the issues until 93. So there's a book where he's quoted and he says something about when a person of color who supports issues of diversity is put into a position of leadership, you can almost expect that students will protest because they have a, a belief that perhaps they will finally be heard. And so that is actually what ended up happening after he became president. The students started calling out, wanting more support. The vice president for student affairs was leaving and they wanted more diversity on the president's cabinet. And that's how the cultural centers ended up opening. But it's interesting because the Women's Center was, again, started by students. It, was be, it started in the 70s, 1971, with ASI. ASI is the one that funded, within their own office, a Women's Center. Well, since we are talking about reporting lines and structure, could you speak on the merger of student life and the cultural centers? I know that when you came back into the position, it had already merged, but you were still on campus. So maybe you can speak to the decision for the, those two offices to conjoin and come together. Because I was across the street, I don't know the entire history, but my understanding is that when the centers were started, that Dr. Jean Awakuni was the vice president for student affairs, and each coordinator 
already worked in another department in student affairs. They were only asked to work part-time in the cultural centers. And the funding came and was carved out by the president's cabinet, was given to Gene Awakuni to manage, and he was their direct supervisor because the president had and the president's cabinet had given the approval for the centers to open. Pretty soon afterwards, Fred Henderson is the person who had worked with Dr. Awakuni before at UC Irvine, and they had worked together at the Cross-Cultural Center, was it, which was one multicultural center. And Fred Henderson was charged with working with the students to find a location on campus. He was given responsibility and funding to help choose a location and remodel whatever location was given. And he actually supervised the Office of Student Life. He was like an associate vice president. I think he was a senior director at that time. And so he already was a senior director of student life. And from, I think for two years, he was charged with renovating, furnishing, getting everything ready. And then after a few years, he actually became the direct supervisor of the cultural centers at the same time that he was supervising student life. And so I think it happened pretty quickly, sometime between 95, 96, because the coordinators did not become full-time until 96. And the Pride Center did not open until 96. And they also opened part-time with Johnny Owens as the part-time director. Before that, she was a volunteer club advisor for the Gay and Lesbian Alliance. It was G-A-L-A at that time. Do you know why they selected Building 95 as a location? Oh, I know a lot about that. I don't know all the spaces they were offered, but I do know that some of the spaces that they were offered were on the fringes of the campus, and the students rejected those spaces. And they said, we want to be in the center of campus. Offer us a space where we we don't look like second-class citizens. And so when Building 95 was offered as a choice, they accepted that. What was Building 95 prior? Before that, there was admissions and outreach. The Women's Center was already in part of that building. Students wanted to be part of the center of campus. They understood the implications of being in a building that was one of the original Kellogg buildings. They understood the significance of essentially reclaiming space. And that's also one of the reasons why Building 26, this is much later in the history, but as space was opening and I was over there as the director, I knew the space was inadequate. I knew the space was inequitably distributed. I knew that communities needed more space allocated to them. And space is hard to find at a university and space is not given easily. And so that's part of why some of the offices ended up moving. And it was a tough decision to make because at one point, the centers actually wanted doors and passageways between each of the spaces. And it was not physically 
feasible because the building and the doorways are on different elevations. And so we had the blueprints out. We were trying to figure out if it could be done. And it just was impossible because of the, the walls and the different elevations. And so the decision was made to say the space is the most important thing for us. And so we're willing to live in two different spaces. Thank you. So shifting gears a little bit, what were some cultural center events or programs that stand out to you in your memory? Oh, wow. The 15 year anniversary for the cultural centers was very moving and was a moment of joy because we were able to find student leaders from many generations that had fought for, advocated for cultural centers, spaces for students of color in the past with past presidents before Suzuki arrived that had been denied. So there were African-American students, there were Native American students, there were LGBT students, there were Chicano students. There were lots of different students from different times in history that had tried to get space for cultural centers. And it was only in this moment of time that everything came together. And so at the 15 year anniversary, it was moving to hear the students acknowledge each other and say to each other, thank you for the efforts that you made. Yes, we're the ones that got it crossed over the line, but we see and we recognize the efforts that you made. And we had coordinators there from the past. We had faculty, staff, administrators, so many people coming together to celebrate the work that the centers were doing and to look back at that WASC report to 2010 and say, we are making a difference. We had done a campus climate study by then. Students from all backgrounds were saying that they appreciated the work of the cultural centers. I think some of the smaller programs were programs that were co-sponsored by multiple centers. So we would have Queer Aslan, and the Pride Center would work together with the Cesare Chavez Center for Higher Education. And we would have programs where we would talk about gender issues in the Black community, and the Women's Center would work together with the African American Student Center. And those collaborations, I always found meaningful, and I remember Later, one of the Native American students was leaving and at her goodbye celebration, she said, I remember when I got hired being told we work together with other people, with other centers. And I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it was true. I just thought you were telling me that. But now that I've been here, I can see that we do work together. And it's hard because we don't always agree. We don't always understand each other. We don't always see eye to eye. And yet we are making the effort. We are trying to have the tough dialogue that we need to have with our students, with our coordinators, and then trying to go and broaden it to the rest of the campus community, which is twice as hard. What do you love most about Cal Poly Pomona? It really is the students and the staff who are willing to never give up. I feel like our students, our staff are so diverse. And when they see something that's not as it should be, that they're willing to speak out about it. They're willing to engage in the conversation and they're willing to do it over decades. This is not a situation where 
you wait for the students to leave and then the issue, quote unquote, will go away. Because the reality is the next generation of students, the next class of students comes in and continues that. The leaders, the student leaders take what we teach them about negotiation, about collaboration, about planning, pro, you know, basic program planning skills that we've taught them, basic budgeting skills, basic research skills, and they use that to advance issues on the campus that are important to them. And I think that's very powerful. Connecting to what you were sharing back of the thoughts and feelings of students in 1990, when you were talking about it, I felt like that's what I've heard from students now. <laughs> so it, it's interesting how in 20 years, while much has changed, students, they're still calling for that change. They're still calling for more faculty that are reflective of their identities. They're still calling for more space, still calling to be heard and to be seen. What do you say to these students in, in knowing all the experience of having been through it? Like what, what advice could you give to these students about what they're experiencing right now? I would say that they are on the right side of history and that the work that they do and the work that they are doing and the willingness that they have to be vulnerable and to share their experiences, that all of that matters. Some work has to be done for those in the future to benefit from because change is hard in higher education because there are just as many people on the campus and in society who are, re are actively resisting the change as there are people who are supporting it. And I don't think, the other thing that I will say is that I would tell our student assistants, we are exhausted because the work we do matters. It will never be done. There will always be more that needs to be done. There will always be another group that is not treated equitably. We can never give up. And when we feel the most resistance, when we feel the most backlash, is when we know we are winning. Wow, that's super powerful. Thank you so much for that. Is there anything that you think is important for our listeners to know? I think one of the things that's important to me is there are questions about why are the cultural centers and student life together? When I came over to be the director of the Office of Student Life and the Cultural Centers, I knew they were underfunded, they were under-resourced, they had no permanent base budgets. Every year, the coordinators were part-time, they were on temporary contracts, and at any time they could be told, thank you for your service, we don't have any more money for you. The only permanent funding they had was for a few student assistants. That was it. There was no funding for programming, there was no funding for office resources, for supplies, nothing. There was nothing. And over time, these are the resources that were garnered. The coordinators were made full-time. They were advocated for full-time permanent budgets. One of the things that I knew was that at other campuses, when cultural centers start, they can be marginalized. But student life was central to campus. And by putting them together, they could not be marginalized. They did not have to fight over who could pick the best weekend to do their event. They were part of student life and student life was part of the cultural centers so that they could work collaboratively. I do know that in, I think it was 2010, we did an external review. 
I brought in people from UC Irvine who worked at the Cross-Cultural Center. I said, tell us, should we continue to have individual cultural centers? Should we continue to be combined with student life? Should we have one multicultural center? There were lots of times in the history of the cultural centers when the president's cabinet would say, they're very expensive. This is a very expensive model. We just need one multicultural center. They should be interacting with one another anyway. And these were people that had no connection with the centers. They had no idea what was really happening. They just were looking at the budgets and the bottom line. And the external program reviewer said, you can do good work no matter where you are. They knew that our students were learning and growing with each other yet. They did say, though, that as this, the work of the centers continues to grow, they are going to need additional support, additional resources. Even in 2010, they said, I think the furniture is the same furniture from when you open the centers. True? And we're all like, yep. They talked about this was when furloughs were happening. There was a fear that, you know, who, who was going to do the work of the cultural centers. And I think it's important to know that it's okay if things grow over time, as long as we keep looking at how do we strengthen each area and not compete for resources. Because once groups start competing for the small resources that they have available to them, then they quit asking for more. They're spending so much time fighting over the dollar that's in the bank that they don't think about how to go ask for another dollar. And that was one of the things that I think we did very well in those years. And students did it. You know, students from ASI created that opportunities initiative where the cultural, they had become cultural months by that time because there were so many programs that people wanted to do and they were reaching so many people. They are the ones that wrote that initiative so that it would take a referendum to undo it because those with different political aspirations couldn't easily take away the money that was being allocated to students of color because there was a comparison always of the amount of money that went to support certain groups of students versus students from that were served by the cultural centers. And there was an acknowledgement at that time that the work that the cultural centers do is educating the entire campus. It is not self-serving work for a few people to feel happy for an hour during university hour. It is work being done on behalf of the campus to continue to improve the campus climate and to speak truth about what their experiences are. So this work has been done in tandem with faculty, with students, with administrators, all working together, staff, everybody. So what do you believe is the legacy of the cultural centers? I think the legacy of the cultural centers starts with the idea that students feel valued. Students that are coming to the campus now have no idea that the centers didn't exist. And they know that there are places for them to explore their identities, to learn more about issues of justice, 
to connect with their learning in the classroom, outside of the classroom. I think this, the legacy of the centers is collaborations that they have with faculty, with community, with parents and families. I think they honor the cultural legacy of our students. They push our students towards their future, perhaps as future graduate students, students that can take their leadership and make change in the world. I think the legacy of the centers is that they're a place where students can be empowered and powerful. They bring a sense of community to the campus that was not there. I promise you, when I left, it felt and looked different than when I arrived. And I credit that to the work of the cultural centers and of all the students that have done that work. Because the cultural centers now includes the multicultural council students, the clubs and organizations, the faculty staff associations, the major events on campus. Not much happens without involvement or input from the cultural centers. Do you have any advice for students who want to make sure that their experience is being heard and want to be change agents on campus on how they can amplify their voice or get heard by folks that don't have tons of interaction with current students? One of the things that we used to do was I would tell our staff, our division, it is important that you share information up that you widely distribute information about what you do, what are the outcomes, that you are visible in the university's strategic plan, because those are the things that are asked about. So if there is a goal that is a university-wide goal, if your division, your department, your center is part of helping to achieve that goal, that is how you support the bigger picture of the university, and you also move forward the things that are important to you. Whether the goal is in the student world, ASI is the governing body. And so if students from the cultural centers need more support from ASI, they need to go to the governing body. If faculty and staff need support, they need to go to the administration and say, how can we support the mission of the university? Here's what we have to offer. Here's how we can measure that for you. Here's how we can provide you support for the path forward. Because there is a lot of research that shows administrators, they've experienced some of these same oppressions themselves. They know. And again, the structure of the university world, it's a bureaucracy. So again, change takes time not giving up and continuing to engage in dialogue, continuing to do the work that has to be done and doing it in a way where you're pulling in coalitions of other people to support you is the most important thing because otherwise you get exhausted, you burn out, it's time to go take a final and it's hard to sustain a few people leading the charge. So looking at how multiple people can offer their assistance in whatever way they can to make change is important. Thank you so much for everything that you shared today. We are very fortunate to hear your perspective and to hear your knowledge. And thank you so much for the work that you have done and what you have contributed to Cal Poly Pomona. And I know that we're benefiting from that work now. 
Well, thank you. And honestly, what I really would like to close by thanking the generations of people that advocated for the cultural centers, that have worked in the cultural centers and student life, that have put their professional and their personal identities out there every single day. It is exhausting work. It is meaningful work. It's beautiful work. And at the same time, being the central place where people come in good times and in bad is something that each of you gives as a gift to this campus and as a gift to the future students who are going to benefit from the work that you are doing now, from the challenges that you are facing now. The campus will not be the same when you are done with the work that you are meant to do there on campus now. And it will forever be changed. It may feel slow, it may be painful, but your time, your effort, your heartbreak, and your stories, all of that matters. And all of it is absolutely making a difference. And you need to believe that every single day. So thank you.